This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are considering a provocative teaching of Jesus that nearly got him executed. Yeah, maybe we'll try to give people a break after last week's episode. We'll try to take it a little easier on people, give some, maybe have some heady up in the clouds conversation, short little conversation, give people a little chance to like catch their breath again although i will note that this episode is definitely of a piece with the previous one it's like a continuing part of the conversation of what we were talking about last time so <laughs> you said it not me but you're absolutely right yep no you're, uh, that, that yep. goes for like the last i don't know five episodes or something like this is a this has been a big conversation that jesus is having yeah goodness and it's really difficult to like wade through but you're absolutely right and i'm glad you pointed it out because you're you're correct and he keeps like shifting his focus like he makes one group angry and then he starts talking to like okay well some of them believed him and he's like okay so let me talk to these people and then by the end of that he's gonna they're gonna want to stone him yep. so <laughs> yeah no you're absolutely right well and it is it is one big conversation absolutely and it's and and again if we're reflecting on and I, we, we spent a lot of time here last episode trying to remove it from this abstract historical observation and trying to associate it, make the parallel, try to figure out what it, whether it is to learn in our own setting and historical context for our own day. And if that's true, like we just, we, if we continue that, we start right in the first verse with like the worst ad hominem attack I've ever seen. But again, so on brand for the religious conversation we would do that on facebook a million times over today so this isn't <laughs> this isn't anything new but after the conversation we had in the last episode let's uh hear where they pick up uh with <laughs> the very next verse here brent the jews answered him aren't we right in saying that you are a samaritan and demon possessed because that makes a ton of sense that was a great <laughs> logical i mean they've obviously brought it up before it's been hanging around from like what a chapter ago or so um, the whole demon possessed thing. Now they add a Samaritan. So now, so now, as I read that, it's not it's not just an ad hominem attack. It's it's like also got this added like in like derogatory, which again, I mean that's what we do. Like watch any comment thread with any stupid debate that we have online. Like it just it it starts to increasingly get more and more personal and a little bit more and more ugly. It just seems like. As John constructs his gospel, there's probably more going on here. I am probably too flippantly reading over verse, what verse we got there? Verse 48. I'm probably too quickly just reading that because there's probably, John has intentionally done the work of inserting that comment in there. So there's probably, whether it's a remez, whether it's some, uh, part of the logic of the argument taking place that I'm missing at this point, there's probably more there than just, boy, isn't that a stupid response? But it, boy, isn't it a stupid response? And I can at least relate to that element of it and simultaneously say there's probably more going on there and why John chose to include that response here in the text. But I digress. Yeah. the uh, And the answer, like Jesus, oh, yeah, let me read his answer first. I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And so he doesn't even address the Samaritan thing. Sure. So that's a great point. Yeah. Like the NET footnotes are saying like, what, what is this? Like, where does this come from? Uh, 
is this like the same thing? So he only needed to address one because it's just one and the same idea. Um, there's a, I don't know if you're f- familiar with the, uh, the character in Acts 8, Marty, um, but there's a Samaritan who shows up and he tries to buy the ability to uh, give the Holy Spirit to people. Is he a Samaritan? And, no way. Is he? Yeah, I guess. Ooh, juicy. I've probably have forgotten that detail. Very interesting. Yeah. In verse 14, it says, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Oh, when they, wow. When they arrived, blah, blah, blah. When Simon, uh, this particular Samaritan character. When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability. Okay. Now, is the NAT making a connection there to those two passages or? Well, so they don't actually, they don't actually say it in the text. Um, But Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. So they don't actually say anything about demon possession. Um, but I guess in in whatever church tradition, he was regarded as being demon possessed. And that's why he responded to what they were doing in that way fast well it would it would man and there's a there's another tradition of another guy named dosithius okay who was also a samaritan okay and apparently claimed to be a son of god okay and was considered demon possessed because of that so that's that's their way of saying like well maybe they were maybe calling someone a samaritan was in a way, calling someone demon-possessed. Uh, that seems a little too much. I don't know. Yeah, well, but it, it is it is weird that Jesus doesn't address the Samaritan part at all. Like, yeah, yeah. There's no mention of it anywhere else in this passage. Right. There, it, I can see why it seemed like a really random connection for them to be making, but now I understand why they'd want to make the Acts connection and then try to bolster that because the very next line all of a sudden makes sense because one of the observations I've made is, what a weird leap to go from the conversation he's been having because he's been he's been talking about who your father is, which household, which Badov you belong to. That whole conversation we had from last episode, he kind of doubles down on it here. I'm not demon possessed. I honor my father, but you don't honor me. So he's still having this like who's your father conversation, but then the very next line all of a sudden he starts talking about glory. If there's some connection between the Samaritan demon possession connection and acts. That's what you see Simon doing. Is Simon's trying to pursue some sense of glory. And I wonder if there is a contextual connection there that we're not aware of, that history's not aware of, um, because that would make sense that Jesus is addressing this. He's not saying, I'm not demon-possessed, and I'm not here seeking my own glory. Now, I'm not suggesting here on the Bema podcast that that's what Samaritans did was seek their own glory, but I'm wondering if there is a cultural accusation being made there that Jesus is responding to. I'm not I'm not demon possessed and I'm not here to seek my own glory, to get wealthy, to build my own kingdom. That's not what I'm doing here. So that w- that would actually make sense. Very interesting. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. 
Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Okay, so Jesus then says, okay, there is somebody who seeks glory, and he's the judge. That's God. He's the one that, I don't want to say you should be worried about, but he's the one that should, you know, his glory, his judgment should be the thing that concerns us. Somebody actually wrote in, a listener wrote in, uh, somebody I know pretty well, his name's John, and uh, he wrote in with a question that... um, at first, I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then the more I thought about it, John, the more I was like, man, there's some really interesting conversation. I'm not sure I have even necessarily an answer, but it was interesting to look at. So in this passage, in John 8.50, uh, Jesus calls God the judge. And John's question was, okay, but there's actually really confusing language about this. And there could even be more verses that John and I didn't discuss. But uh, Brent, if you would go back to John chapter 5... Give me uh, some of the verses that we, we, there are some references to judgment and who's doing judging uh, in John 5. How about, you, how about we read those one at a time and we'll discuss those and then keep going. Really confusing, by the way, that this guy's name is John. <laughs> sure. I'll quit referring to him as uh, John. I'll call him uh, Mr. Wallace. How about that? <laughs> okay, sounds good. Uh, so John 5, we have, uh, we have first verse 22. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Okay, so right there, Jesus said a few things. The Father judges no one, and we have to remember, like we have to resist the urge to try to tie all these passages we're going to look at together with like this clean little thread, because each one of these passages are their own contextual instance. Like Jesus is having a different conversation in John 5 than he's having in John 8 with a different situation and a different audience, and he's talking about different things. So it's not that we have to harmonize these statements. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I am trying to do is figure out, like, are these as contradictory as they sound? Is Jesus, like, what is is what Jesus teaching consistent? So in this instance, Jesus says that the Father judges no one, and I think the implication is there is that he the God is not interested in passing judgment, but he's given all judgment to the Son, so there is, Jesus speaks to this partnership that exists between the Father and the Son, and judgment happens between the two of them, so to speak. And then what does he connect it to? Glory. He says, God does this so that the Son may be honored, might be glorified. I don't, th- I don't know if it's the same word. I'd have to check and see if the word for glorify here in John 50, 850, is the same as, as honor. And John 5. Do you want to check that, Brent? I don't seek my own glory. Yep. Doxa. Oh, okay. Then what's the other one? John 5. Well, it's not there. Okay. It does appear in John 5.41 and 5.44. Okay. Which I don't think will necessarily show up here unless there are some other connections that I haven't even seen yet. But fantastic. Okay. So Jesus' point is that there's a uh, the Father doesn't just judge abstractly on his own. There's a partnership. He, he has passed judgment onto the Son. There's a partnership between the Father and the Son and the act of judging. And this is done so that the Son, I think the reference and implication is Jesus, although Josh Bosse has me questioning everything these days, but it, that, that glory and that, that honor might go to, to Jesus. Okay, what's the next reference we have? Also in John 5, right, Brent? Yeah, there's a couple more. Uh, verse 27 um, and I'm going to replace some words because there's a lot of pronouns here. Um, it says, God has given this, or rather, 
the Father has given the Son authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Okay. So again, this reference to God has entrusted or given, same thing he just said in that previous verse, the theme here in John 5 being that God has entrusted the work of judgment to the Son. And he's done this according to the earlier verse so that the Son could be glorified. Okay. What's the what's the next verse we have? And then we have verse 30, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Okay, so that feels almost a little backwards to you, doesn't it, Brent? Like, it almost feels contradictory to what he just said a moment ago. Yeah, I have the authority, but I'm not using it, basically. Right. Now, I hear that, and I'm trying to make sure this isn't just some slick, apologetic harmonizing I'm trying to do. I hear that as Jesus saying, listen, God, the Father could just be like the judge, but instead he has formed this partnership with the son so that the son could be glorified. Of course, I don't just judge without hearing what I hear from my father. So I hear him reinforcing this um, back and forth partnership in which neither one of them, now let's see what else What else gets said. Um, do you want to go to John chapter 8, which is actually a couple episodes ago, but give us the next reference. So John 8, we have... Uh, verse 15, you judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. Okay, let me I go back and take Father. this. Yeah, let me let me go back and take this chunk by chunk, actually. So read me that first chunk first. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. Okay, so now there's a whole other element that Jesus wasn't discussing in John 5. In John 5, Jesus was talking about this relationship with the Father and who's 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 being honored. I shouldn't say glorified because it wasn't the same word. Who's being honored and who's doing the judging and that partnership. Now Jesus is referencing this religious group, you religious folk. Well, you judge by, by worldly metrics, human standards, Jesus says. I don't judge. So I see another consistent theme in that I, I think part of what Jesus is communicating is God and I both we're not in this for the judgment. That's not why I'm here. And I think that's very consistent with other passages in John, John 3.16. For God did not send Jesus, or 3.17, God didn't send Jesus in the world to judge the world, to condemn the world, but to save the world. So I think part of what Jesus is saying is God, the Father and the Son's agenda is not ultimately judgment. That's not what we're here to do. You guys love to judge by human standards, I, okay, so what was the next? Give me, give me the next little chunk. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. Okay, so that seems to reinforce what we were just talking about in John 5, that there is this partnership. So Jesus says, you guys are judging by worldly human standards and metrics. We're not here to judge, but if we do judge, not when we judge, but if we judge— our judgment would be true. Yours is a little faulty. Your human worldly metrics are a little off. Ours would be spot on because of the partnership that we have, the Father and the Son, together. Do we have another? We have another verse there, too, at least, right? Yeah. Verse 26, I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him, I tell the world. So again, I hear him reinforcing that what feels like all these contradictory statements seem to reinforce the same line of thinking to me, where Jesus says, I could, <laughs> I have much to say. <laughs> I have watched I have watched you religious folk for some time. I have a lot to say in judgment of you. But again, that's not why I'm here. And why I'm here is what I've told you. 
and I'm staying true to the agenda that the Father and I have in this world. And it's not to try to correct every little thing that you got wrong. And I think, what a beautiful little thing to reflect on in light of last week's episode, because isn't God's grace and compassion beautiful in light of all the things we continually get wrong, that he's slow to anger, faithful when we're faithless, and continues because he's really not here just to render judgment on children of Abraham, children of the devil, you're in, you're out. He is here to announce truth, love, freedom, light. Come on, get on board. The choice is yours. Wake up. That kind of conversation. And I find that. Any other verses we have, Brent? That That's it for the judgment idea. All right. So then we show up in John eight fifty, and he says, God is the judge. And that that feels very... That's probably the one that feels the most contradictory to where we started in John 5, and yet Jesus never said in John 5 that God wasn't the judge. He simply said that God passed on the judging and entrusted the work of judging to Jesus, who doesn't do it without the help of the Father, and now we're seeing Jesus say, and that that Father character is still very much the God that we expected him to be. So I don't know if that made any sense. It was a fun little journey. I appreciated... um, my good friend, Mr. Wallace, sending in that uh, that question and leading me on a little little impromptu Bible study. I thought it was good. <laughs> yeah, these are the, you know, these, I mean, maybe this is one of those reasons that just makes us shy away from this section of John is because it's like, okay, my head is spinning because it seems like everything is one way and then all of a sudden it's the other way. <laughs> so yeah, being able to like break it all out, set them all next to each other and think like, okay, what is actually happening here? Right. And yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't say that God never judges. Right. Yep. Great point. All right. Well, let's uh, see where we continue to go. I don't know how much we got more to talk about today. Let's, let's find out. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Now, is that like, we're going to see how literally his audience takes that statement. I'm curious how literally we take that statement in reference to eternal life. He said something very, very similar just in the last episode, Brent, where he said, if if you do what I tell you, you will. What did he say in the last episode? If you do what I tell you, you will. Well, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. And? Excellent. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth. You will experientially know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I hear him saying, here, here, if very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And I I wonder if that's not a very, very, very similar statement to what he said uh, in last week's episode. And I, I wonder if we take it, because I think we're going to read the, ne- the response here of the audience. We're going to be like, man, what a bunch of idiots. Don't they understand? Don't they see metaphor? Don't they understand wordplay? And I'm like, eh, I wonder if we understand the metaphor and the wordplay as much as we ought to. So nevertheless, I digress. At this, they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon possessed. Or maybe now we know that you are demon possessed. Yeah, sure. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Who in the heck do you think you are? Taking him very mechanically, very literally. And I always kind of assume that they're not taking him as literally as it seems it does. Usually when I do some more study, when I do some more historical contextual work, I find that they're actually not as as dumb as we tend to read them on the surface. But 
for lack of our for the sake of our conversation today they're they're again getting lost between this worldly and heavenly conversation same thing we saw in John 3 same thing we saw in John 5 same thing we saw in John 7 the same thing we're seeing now in John 8 a very very consistent conversation about heavenly conversations worldly conversations i've spoken to you of worldly things you don't understand how could you understand heavenly things i feel like a very similar tone here to their response. And this is another one of those instances in the Greek where there's the assumed negative response. Are you greater than our father Abraham? And they are assuming that the answer is no. <sighs> Which is great because of where it's going to go next. I didn't even think about the connection of that to where Jesus' response is going to head. Like they essentially say, what do you think? You're greater than Abraham? Now let's see what Jesus says. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. <laughs> Though you do not, I mean, it's just. <laughs> and when you think about last week's episode, it just, it, it, this works so, it, it is really one seamless conversation because it works so well. They're like, who, who do you think you are? You think you're better than Abraham? To which Jesus talks about glory. He says, well, I'm not here to glorify myself. The one who does glorify me would be this father that you just said a moment ago, you know so well, and yet you seem to be missing it. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus says, their question was, what do you think? You're, you're greater than Abraham? Jesus says, I'm not here to glorify myself. My father glorifies myself. That's the stuff that I'm interested in. That's what you seem to miss. And Abraham waited for this day that is right now upon you. Yeah, and there's, I guess, some debate about what does is, what is Jesus mean when he said that Abraham saw it, past tense. Let's see here. Where is that? Give me that, give me that verse reference. Abraham. So verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it. I see. Boy, I, I just can't help but hear Hebrews there, where it talks about uh, Abraham and everybody else in the hall of faith seeing their promises in the distance and and greeting them from a distance. They realized they would never see the the fulfillment of those promises, and they greeted them from a distance. And we talked about that, I believe, in our Hebrews podcast and episode. But that's what I think about when I hear that. What a beautiful little connection between, I don't know if they're meant to be connected, but what a cool little Abraham did see it. He saw it. He he waved at it from a distance. He realized he wouldn't be physically alive for it, but he was he was ready. He rejoiced at this day. Yeah, from the NET footnotes, apparently in Genesis Rabbah, Rabbi Akiva is debating some other rabbis, and he says that Abraham was shown his own world, but also the world to come. I was just going to say, Brent, I wonder if there's anything in the Midrash. <laughs> I was a literal, and then you just beat me to it. You pulled out the midrash is great, and which gives so much light to again that Hebrews conversation. Like that's not just the Hebrews writer, po- you know, pulling poetry. That's the Hebrews writer saying, "Guys, we know this in our own tradition. We talk about this. Abraham, Abraham had this bigger understanding, this greater idea. He got a glimpse of the age to come. What a beautiful." That's great. I love that. Yeah. And then the NET translators um, also reference Genesis 22, where he sees the ram and rejoices in that instance. And Oh, what a great. Oh, stop it, NET. Stop it. <laughs> Golly, look at that. 
What a wonderful little. I'm not even looking for Ramez. I said that last episode, but hot dog. What a great little. <laughs> what a great little ditty. I love it. Yeah, ninety percent of the time it's just blockbuster. <laughs> it's just those few weird moments where it's like, okay, where where did they come yeah. from with that? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, you are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Seems like a logical, yeah, seems like a logical question. Okay, you're telling me what Abraham thought and knew? You you know the guy? What's going on here? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And here, I don't have any, like, like, I've now made the case twice, two out of three times, that I don't think Jesus pulled a Jedi mind trick. I don't think he slipped through the crowd like a Star Trek moment. I I think he just basically stood on his innocence and walked away from the crowd. And the way that this one's worded, I don't got any gymnastics for you. It seems that he said a pretty provocative thing and just kind of ducked out into an alleyway. I think about uh, season one of The Chosen where Matthew or Jesus steals a glance at Matthew for the very first time right before he ducks out into the alleyway and disappears like maybe that was the maybe that's my image that i carry with him of because apparently and i think sometimes we make uh sometimes there is like there's a string of christian thought where every single time jesus says the phrase i am everybody connects it to the holy name of god like and and sometimes i'm like no jesus is just using the phrase i am whatever like just because he uses the phrase, like, I am, even when he says the great I am statements, I don't even think the direct hermeneutical connection there is to the name of God. I think the connection there is to Torah. I think the connection there is to uh, the pagan gods. But I don't see that as the connection to the, uh, you know, the holy name, the four-lettered name of God. But here, apparently, he is absolutely making a very clear, as John tells it, connection to that name and everybody sees it and connects it and while they're grabbing stones he slips off as john tells the story so uh it's what it seems like to me as i read it but maybe there's more there i still have yet to unpack that's the joy of studying the bible yeah this isn't one of the seven i am statements no but it's but this is probably like the i like <laughs> this is probably the statement right, that is yeah. the i am statement right yeah because they're they just immediately like the conversation is over they pick up stones yeah. and then and go to go to stone him so like yeah it definitely definitely has some weight um on the idea of how he slipped away i guess it is later manuscripts that add a phrase to the end of this passage that says passing through their midst, he went away in this manner. Oh, okay. With a few other similar things. And I guess there's... Okay, well, there you go. I can be three for three. Yeah, there's some similar wording in Luke um, Yep. 4 okay. and yep. John... Yep, they're going to connect it to those other stories. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and then, and then, you know, in John 9, like, they try to parallelize those passages and whatever. Um but yeah, it, it does seem to be like an addition in later manuscripts and not there in the original text. So yeah, well there you go. We'll find out. We could be three for three. Three for three. What were the, what are the other two? What are you talking about? Uh, well, I made the case that he's not you know magically slipping away. That it's you know he just walks to the crowd when they take him outside of Nazareth. That'd be the Luke four passage. Earlier in John, we referenced that, and I I didn't think it was him like 
sneaking away. I think he simply passed, like he just went on his way. Oh, sure. So if this could be read that way, we'd be three for three, and we don't have to have a... Uh, there are some interesting questions that come up when you have like, like Jesus, like sneaking out of the way, like either, either passing through like a weird sci-fi moment or just, it's just a weird image to see Jesus like, here's my statement. And then like disappearing, like off stage in a cloud of smoke and, you know, dry ice, you know, whatever. It's just weird. Well, and the text says they picked up stones and presumably that's going to take some time because they probably don't all just have a stone sitting there at their feet ready to go. So it's like everyone's distracted trying to find the stones. And then they come back and like, hey, where'd he go? Well, that could that could absolutely be true. I can tell you from some of the people that write me emails, they got a stone ready to go. So um, there's always those people in the crowd. Like, I'm ready. I got one in my backpack. Oh, no. <laughs> Man, un- unburden yourself. Don't carry that stone around. <laughs> That's right. That's not that's not good for you. That's right. That's right. Let it go. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that that does it. I think that's it for today. A little short, little shorter. Yep. Yep. John 8 is done. Whew. We'll be back next time with John 9. I'm excited. John 9's one of my I'm finally getting out of this section that has just I've labored over for so long. So I am I'm anxious to get on to spiritual blindness and the man born blind. Let's do it. All right. Well, if you want to get a hold of Marty, no stone throwing, but you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB, and you can find more details about the show at BamaDiscipleship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.